Hey, Adam. Everybody, welcome to the show. How you doing? Okay. Cut it back to the craziness, you know, like it's, it's, it's the back, it's the back to work feeling today. I think it's Tuesday when we're recording this. So, you know, coming off those two weeks of the holidays where you're not really sure what day it is. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, bewildered at the moment, to be honest. How about you? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How was your holiday? Quiet. Uh, we, we had a, a bunch of, uh, the Omicron thing is is everywhere, right? And so we've got restrictions and that sort of thing in, in Ontario and in Toronto. So kept it kind of quiet, saw some family, but this is the cool thing. My daughter's two and a half. So this is kind of the first year where she understands Santa Claus and right. seeing that for the first time, it's uh, it's magic. And I, I just can't wait to do it again. That's great. Yeah. What about That's you? Great. Um, well, uh, it was uh, interesting. Uh, every okay. year we uh, uh, we're very close with uh, my brother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law and their three kids who are similar in age to uh, to our two kids. And every year they come in, they spend the Thanksgiving week in the U.S. with us and we go spend Christmas week with them in Seattle. So we get on a plane and we fly to Seattle. And uh, once we arrive, they all start testing positive. so we made i'm sorry i don't uh, know i didn't mean to laugh there but oh my gosh yeah so we made the uh, difficult decision um my son was born uh december 24th uh it was the 23rd we had been in seattle for less than 24 hours got on a plane and flew back to la and when we got back home we uh uh we all stayed at home for five days uh we didn't know if we uh, we're going to test positive or not, but we all waited five days and then all got PCR tested. Everything was fine. And then okay. we, uh, so we, we got out of Dodge just in time. Oh yeah. Well, and, and happy to hear that by the way, happy to hear everybody was negative. Um, your son having a birthday on Christmas Eve, you must have to, it must be tough for him because like it almost gets overshadowed every year and then having to lock it down. I know he's a, he's a teenager, right? He he just turned 19 and he's a freshman uh, at university in Washington, D.C. He's back in L.A. for the holidays. Um, He's going to stay a little bit longer now because his uh, university is going remote for the first couple of weeks of uh, second semester. I don't think he ever really got shortchanged um, having a birthday on the 24th. We always made a point to separate um, um, his birthday from the holidays and always did something special uh for years we would uh, go to laguna beach and hang out on the beach on his birthday um something you can do when you live in southern california uh and uh it, it, the holidays always represented you know like a very intense couple of days together and then i would every year fly out uh usually on my own although a few times with the family to the world juniors Right. And, uh, you know, there were years where I'd be flying out to Finland and to Sweden and to Switzerland and the Czech Republic. Um, and, and, you know, most of the years um, spend New Year's Eve on the road at the World Juniors, uh, many times away from the family. So uh, it, it, every year there was sort of a rhythm to, you know, celebrate my son's birthday, uh, Christmas Day, and then the next morning flying out. And it's just mm. something that we, that we, the whole family came to expect. And I was, you know, always doing. And of course this year with 
everything up in the air with Edmonton and uh, uh, Omicron and uh, uh, players starting to test positive, playing in the World Juniors. Uh, I made the decision on on Christmas Day not to go to Edmonton. And it turned out to be a pretty good decision because the World Juniors were canceled two days later. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, I spoke to lots of players who were in Edmonton playing on the different teams. They were absolutely devastated, oh. just devastated. And, uh, and I felt gutted for them, um, for many of the players, especially the ones born in 2002, this is their last year, uh, of eligibility to represent their country, uh, U20. And that opportunity is lost. Oh. So um, it was. It was very. It, we're we're still living in very uh, uh, disappointing, surreal, um, somewhat uh, uncertain times. And uh, it it still. You know, I never thought we'd still be challenged by uh, COVID uh, a year and a half uh, going on two years later. But you know, here we are. Do you get the sense that that there's any chance that this tournament comes back this summer? Like, have you heard anything? There is some talk about it. Um, it's uh, the ho- Canada is the host country, mm-hmm. so uh, any any proposal is going to have to come from Hockey Canada. Uh, obviously, it's going to have to uh, be approved by the IIHF, and you're going to have to have a, a desire from all the other countries to get together. I think the earliest possible. Uh, time to put it on would be at the end of the season. So we're talking about a May, June tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is uh, the the odds of it happening are remote, mm-hmm. but there still is some talk about it. And uh, and obviously, you know, we've seen um, over ninety postponements of NHL games as well. And I, you know. They're not going to the Olympics. Obviously, that gives them some time to make up some of these games. And I know that like the Leafs are limited to Wednesday and Saturday games right now. Um, You know, what have you heard as far as how the NHL is going to make that up? Do they have um, do they have the the the, the runway to make up those postponements? Do you shorten the season? Like what what do they do? Well, the runway right now is the the three week break. And I think most teams are going to be uh, playing right through it to make up the games that have already been postponed. The uh, sticky part of all this is going to be if we keep postponing games, because I think um, once we get, if we do over around 110, we're at 92 right now, over 110 postponed games, it will no longer be possible to fit all those games into that three-week break. And we're going to have to look at pushing the season uh, back and, and playing once again. I mean, last, last year, the Stanley cup was awarded. I believe it was July 15th. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the league is uh, they don't want to do that again. And they want to stay as much as possible to the uh, traditional hockey calendar, but we may have to be in a situation where we go uh, 10 days, two weeks, maybe even three weeks. Uh, into what is normally considered the off season to get in 82 games and a full playoff. Oh, and, and 
you know, you, you get the, the, the up close and personal view, that short window between the, the end of last season. And then of course the start of this season, um, you know, what was the, what is the effect on players? What's the effect on the families? What's the effect on their bodies? Cause it, there has to be something, I mean, it's a short period of time. Usually they got more time to recover. Sure. Uh, but I, I think right now, um, so many teams are, are shut down mm-hmm. that players are very concerned about um, losing their conditioning. And when you're not on the ice for six or seven days, uh, you need to get some pretty good practices in to get back into uh, game shape. And I have my own theory that uh, one of the reasons we're seeing such high scoring games uh, lately uh, and, and, you know, eight to five mm-hmm. uh, and games like that is because number one, we're using a lot of uh, quote unquote call-ups. American league players are coming in and I think guys are, are out of shape. And by the time they get to the third period, they're, they're gassed. Second win. Guys, yeah. The guys are just gassed. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a, uh, a, a constant pull going on right now between uh, the league's desire uh, to generate and maintain as much HRR hockey related revenue as possible versus player safety. Uh, and, and when those two bump up against each other, I think uh, the Montreal game in Florida where Montreal played with um, 11 and five, 11 forwards, five defensemen uh, had a player uh, out uh, during the game forward uh, for a good part of the game, they were playing 10 forwards and, and five defensemen. Um, you know, at what point are you, uh, it, does the game lack integrity? Mm. And, and at what point is player safety uh, overriding here, the desire to play the game and generate the HRR and, and, and avoid a postponement. And I think that uh, whenever the two bump up against each other, I always believe we should default to player safety uh, over and above everything else. Uh, Some people don't agree with that. That's fine. But I think that um, uh, we're going to come up most likely with these issues again in the next uh, week to 10 days. And and I'm concerned for the players and player safety. And I I hope that the decisions are being made uh, to, to protect the players and to also maintain the integrity of the games that are being played. Wow. Well, it's something that we'll, we'll manage significantly. And Alan, I could talk to you for an hour about this, but we do have to bring on our guest, Doug Armstrong. And before we do, obviously, Doug Armstrong is a longtime general manager in the league. Obviously, he's, you know, he's got the Stanley Cups. He's worked with legends. And we're going to talk to him about all of that. But why was it important for you to have Doug on this show? Because... There are 32 general managers in the league. Um, you could have picked from any of them, uh, but Doug Armstrong was an important pick for you. And I, I, I wanted to to see what you what you thought about that. Why, why Doug Armstrong? Well, I, I don't know if uh, if if every GM in the league would be comfortable coming on and That's and, true. and having a conversation <laughs> yeah. uh, with us. Uh, I, I know Doug well, and uh, I've dealt with him and worked with him for many, many years. And I know that uh, uh, many times uh, he and I have uh, agreed to disagree on different issues, 
but we've always done it with a level of respect towards each other where it's okay to say no. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to see things um, in a completely different way, but still respect the fact that the person sitting on the other side of the table has a job to do, and uh, they are doing it to the best of their abilities, and there's nothing personal behind it. And I think that uh, Doug is somebody that exemplifies that. Uh, He's had tremendous success at um, everything he's done. Uh, I don't know if there's another NHL general manager out there who's participated in two cups, two Olympic gold medals uh, at the Olympic, you know, two Olympic gold medals and two gold medals at the world championships. That's, I think he's a, a solo member of that club. So he's, he's earned his uh, respect the hard way. Um, he uh, has been involved in the game and management for a long time. And I thought that he'd be the perfect person to come on and uh, share uh, his perspectives with us. So let's bring him on. General manager of the St. Louis Blues, Doug Armstrong. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. Our guest this week is the former general manager of the Dallas Stars, the GM of the Canadian Olympic team. Well, we'll talk about that. And for the last 11 years, the general manager of the St. Louis Blues. He's won two gold medals for Canada at the World Championships, two Olympic gold medals, and two Stanley Cups. Let's give a big welcome to Doug Armstrong. <laughs> huge audience, Doug. Huge audience. That, that's big. That's big. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like that intro? Very nice. Very nice. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great to have you here. I don't know if it's ever uh, occurred in history before where uh, an agent got to interview uh, a general manager. So this should be uh, a very interesting uh, next little while together. Um, I've always been fascinated by people's beginnings and their career paths. Can you give us uh, a, a brief history of how you got involved on the management side of the game. I know you started in Washington way back when, and maybe you can give us a a little bit of a rundown from there. Well, I I guess I'll go back to my youth. I started, my father was in the NHL for the better part of uh, 50 years. He was an official uh, alignsman in the 50s through 79, and then got into scouting for the Montreal Canadiens. So hockey's always been a huge part of my life, a huge part of our family's lives. And then, uh, when I graduated university, I wanted to get into hockey, and um, I ended up actually working in Washington in a non-hockey job, trying to just get in, in my foot in the door. And then my first hockey job really came in Minnesota, back when the North Stars uh, were going to half the team. The year I got there in 1990-91, half the team the next year was going to go to San Jose, San Jose. But they but they played together for that year, and so Bob Clark took over as manager, and Bob Ganey as the coach, and uh, they had. Pretty well, most of the front office staff, Dean Lombardi, uh, uh, Jack Ferrer had already gone to San Jose to get ready for that group. So we were there and uh, Bob Clark brought me in and, and got me uh, started in the hockey operations there. It was a very small group and uh, a good friend of mine, Les Jackson, was there and, and uh, 
uh, he said that basically I got my MBA in hockey from those two guys. It was like going to Harvard of hockey, working for Bob and Bob. And uh, when I look back on it, he was right. It was a fantastic uh, a start. And uh, I... So when I got the job, Bob Clark, uh, who turned out to be a very good friend of mine now, uh, said, uh, in all honesty, Doug, your dad got you the job, but just know he won't keep it for you. So <laughs> he, 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 he let me know very quickly that I was on my own at that point, and, uh, and he was a great. And then when he, he went back to Philadelphia from there, <clears throat> Bob Ganey took over as coach and manager, and that was probably a – for me, just a great opportunity because as you're coaching, you 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 know obviously the trades and all that the, all those things went through Bob, but all the all the work behind the scenes had to get done, and I was there to try and help him along. And uh, then that team moved to Dallas. We spent uh, I spent a number of years there. I loved my time in Dallas, 16 years. Worked the first uh, I think 12 as a uh, as assistant manager, then took over as manager, and then uh, like as Alan knows in this job, father time caught up to me and I got fired. Uh, <laughs> came down to came down to St. Louis, and uh, as I say, the rest is history. How how much of a um, the, those 16 years in Dallas and the years you spent as an assistant GM uh, really prepared you for for being the guy, for being the GM, being the boss? being responsible for the staff, the coaching staff, and, uh, you know, all the transactions and, and all of that stuff. I would say the foundation was key. Uh, I think as you, you're younger, I started out, I didn't play in the NHL or play professional hockey. So I was able to get into management in my, my mid twenties. Uh, and so you think you're, you're, more prepared than you really are at, at 34, 35, 36. And, and I was, and then when I got the job, I realized that, uh, I had a lot to learn and, <clears throat> but, Working and getting the doing the contracts and, and doing all the things behind the scenes really helped me to get ready to be a manager. Uh, and then just the school of hard knocks, you know, the first couple of deals I, you make, you're very nervous. You're you're calling around and then, you know, I'm in awe of Glenn Sather and Lamorello. Now they're trying to pick my pocket. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it was a great uh it was a great experience learning from Bob Ganey and, and working, as I say, as you can tell, the, the respect I have for Bob Ganey and Bob Clark is you, you sort of get a little street credibility because I, I was working with those guys. Uh, they were they were held in such high esteem uh, around the league from the other managers that I think that lessened, it made it easier for me to get into that circle and then, uh, as I said, just skin your knee along the way. We had uh, We had some success in Dallas. Uh, my first five or six years there, we we couldn't reach uh, our ultimate goal in the playoffs. We had great regular seasons, but found ways to falter. And that organization at that time was built on Stanley Cup or bust. Uh, we had won a cup in 99, went back in 2000. And then uh, I think my years managed, I think we might have averaged 110 points a year, somewhere close to that, except we just didn't get it done in the playoffs. And in a, in a market like Dallas, it was it was expected to to get to the third or fourth round, and it was Alan, as you would know, it was the timing was different though because in the nineties we almost started in in the in the semifinals or quarterfinals at least because uh, <clears throat> because the salary cap, you know, we were playing, we had a $70 million salary cap back in the nineties and Edmonton, we played, I think five years in a row and they had like a $25 million cap. And so they beat us once and then they beat Colorado once, but usually, you know, there was St. Louis, Detroit, Colorado, and Dallas that were sort of the cream of the crop playing at a different level, only out of economics. And, uh, um, uh, 
I, I call that the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, I, I have a question for you. Uh, as a Toronto fan, or grew up a Leaf fan, still am, uh, the, my first exposure to Bobby Clark for my generation was watching him and Pat Quinn go back and forth over Eric Lindros in the public. Uh, we knew how blunt he was and how forthright he could be. What would you say your, your biggest takeaway or your biggest lesson or your best story from working with Bob Clark would be? Well, there's a ton of great stories. Uh, I'll go back to one my, my dad shared with me when he was an official and they were playing in Montreal and uh, my dad threw Clarky out of, out of the face-off dot and Clarky looks at me and goes, hey, Neil, 15,000 people here. Not one person paid to watch you drop the puck. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I always a, found that one funny. <laughs> that's a great story. That's a great story. Yeah, and, and then just... Just working for Bob, uh, the inclusion, uh, it was always team first. He was such, both Bobs were, were all around the team. What was good for the team? Every individual had to succumb to what was best for the team. And those are things that I've tried to, to carry on in my managing a team is that, uh, you know, A, you're working with people. So Bob Ganey would say like when, when, when trading someone becomes easy, you probably should get out of the business. That means you've lost your compassion for, for a gentleman and his wife and his kids or, or just uprooting someone's life. And so I've tried to carry some of those things on where you, you understand that it's a people business. And I think the players understand that a coach has a job to do and a manager has a job to do, but I think there's a way you can try and do it where you show some compassion, but ultimately you have to do your job. It's not, not saying we're, we, we can't make trades or we don't do things that we're, we're, we don't want to do, but I think you have to do them with the right reasons and, and, and think those through. But uh, I would say Bob Clark, I, you know, he was generous to a fault. Uh, I remember a story. So we, my wife and I were newly married and he had a beautiful house in Edina. And he said, well, why don't you take care of my house this summer? You know, we had a pool and, uh, uh, all those things. And I said, sure. And then he threw the keys to the Porsche to me for the summer. I was like, wow, oh, wow. <laughs> I have made it. All right. So come, coming from a small town in Sarnia, in Sarnia, Ontario, I called my friends. Oh, you got to come up. You got to come up this summer. You got to see this place I'm staying at. <laughs> Clark, Clark, he was a, he's, he's so uh, personable and so generous. Uh, that That's what I really remember him. And he, he, he helped me every step of the way, trying to be, trying to become a better manager. When I became a manager, uh, he helped me along the way. He'd answer questions. He'd, you know, he, he had to, his job to do too. If he could pick my pocket, he would, but he really helped me understand what it was going to take to have success in this past just three or four years. And then being out the door. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I obviously remember, you know, Doug, you and I are just about the same age. You're born in 64. I'm born in 65 and all throughout the um, Montreal Canadian years in the seventies, uh, the, the Flyers won their two cups and there was that great rivalry. And, uh, you know, Bobby Clark was known for being such a warrior on the ice, such a leader in the room. Um, it was almost natural for him to move over into management after his playing career. And I know that he was a, a very important mentor to you, but you've also talked a lot about Bob Gainey. And I know that uh, Bob also served as a tremendous mentor to you in Dallas uh, first Minnesota, then Dallas. Why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like uh, uh, working uh, with Bob? 
Yeah, well, I, Bob Clark was interesting because it was all in a short period of time, maybe two or three years. Uh, Bob Gain and I had a relationship, uh, uh, you know, through his coaching and management for a better part of a decade. Our families became very close. Uh, we were there, you know, Bob allowed me to share in the high of a Stanley Cup that he managed. Uh, I also was there for some of the darker times in, in his life, the passing of his wife and his child. And and we became very good friends, still are very good friends today. I consider him maybe my best friend, he and Ken Hitchcock, in the sense that, Alan, he's one of those guys you can call and you pick up to where you were four or five months ago. There's no small talk needed. There's nothing there. Uh, but what I what I learned from Bob, again, was just team. Uh, he was the ultimate uh, team player for the Montreal Canadiens, did all the little things. Uh, his work ethic was off the charts. Uh, that That's what I noticed from him, his work ethic, his preparation, his, you know, not never looking for a shortcut, never looking for for an easy way out, always went through the front door and everything that he did. And those are those are the things that you try and pick up on as as, as you're managing, not only managing a hockey team, but being a partner to my wife and, and raising kids, I learned a lot from Bob on, on just being a, being a good person or trying to be a good person. He is, I'm trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that transition take place? I know that um, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Bob Ganey uh, uh, left Dallas as GM. It was probably uh, about a month before the trade deadline. Um, how did that uh, transition take place for you? Well, what happened, Alan, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half before that, uh, there were some teams, because we are having success, and uh, I was at that age where people thought I might be ready for a job. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Bob went to the ownership and said, I, I sort of have a, a timeline I think I'm going to work on, and I recommend that Doug become the manager or else we have to let him start interviewing for these jobs. So I had known that I was going to be taking over for Bob at some point. It wasn't supposed to be at the end of that year. He left in February. Uh, that team had run its course. It, it, it was, it was a very good team. It was a veteran team, uh, but players were getting older. And I think, and I know this from firsthand experience now, uh, you know, he decisions had to be made on guys that had, that had, that bled for Bob and poured everything out for Bob. And I thought he, he felt at that time he was ready to let somebody else make those decisions. So we'll fast forward. So I, I, uh, Bob, uh, steps down. He, uh, lets Ken Hitchcock go the same day. So Rick Wilson came on with me and worked that year out. Uh, so we're at the trade deadline that year. It's one of my favorite stories. And, you know, Bob stayed on as a consultant. So we're, we're in my office and, about two hours before I'm working on this big deal with Lou Lamorello, but I'm basically, I feel like I'm the middleman, you know, when I look back on it, uh, Lou would say something. I said, hang on. And I put my hand over the phone. Bob, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and it ended up being a Jason Arnott, a first round pick for Jamie Langenberg and Joe Newendike. Yeah. And as a deal was going on and, and I was kept looking at Bob and uh, I was working with uh, Les Jackson at the time and maybe Francois Giguere was with us, but if not, it was those two guys for sure. So it was an hour before the deadline and Bob says to, to Les, he says, well, time to go for lunch. You know, Doug's got a job to do. He's got to figure this out. I'm like, what? <laughs> whoa, whoa, where are you going? <laughs> and, and, and he just said, hey, you wanted the job. This is the job. You got to figure out what you want to do and you got to do what you think is right. And so they walked out and they shut the door and I'm sitting there like stunned by myself, <laughs> looking at the clock, knowing I got to make a decision here. <laughs> and we ended wow. up making the trade and uh, 
it was, you know, it was, it was difficult. Uh, Joe, Joe and Jamie had done so much for Dallas and, and I consider them friends at that time. And I, you know, I look back on it, it, I think it worked out. They went on and won a Stanley cup. We had some great years with Jason Arnott, uh, but it, it was, that was the hardest trade I ever had to make because I, I was new at it. Uh, Joe had just bought a new house and was, moved into it the day before. Oh, about, he, about a, a block away from where I lived and we lived a block away from each other in our previous homes and somewhat close, you know, contemporaries age wise. And Jamie Langburner, you know, was a great player for us. It was really hard when I look back on it. It's, it's the one that I found most difficult, not, not because of, having to make a trade is just what those guys had given out of the organization and probably didn't see it coming. And quite honestly, I didn't see it coming, but I know I'm babbling here, but we had like a, a great left-handed centerman and Mike Madonna. And I, my vision was if you have a great right-handed centerman and are not, you're, you're built down the middle. And yeah, so I sort of talked myself into making a trade. And as I said, it worked out for Dallas too. We had some great years with Arnie and obviously uh, Jersey had some great years with Jamie and Joe. So, mm-hmm. um, that that was an interesting one for me. Yeah. How how often do you speak uh, with other GMs? Is it on a daily basis? Are there certain GMs you speak to more than others? Yeah, there certainly are certain GMs. I think it's uh, uh, I, I go back to when I started. Uh, you know, in two thousand and two, I would talk to the younger managers because I was much more comfortable talking to those guys. Uh, now I get to you know. 2022 and I, I'm talking to the older guys because uh, <laughs> they're much more comfortable talking to me but uh, I, I try and reach out to guys as much as possible uh, uh, in today's technology you can, you can do it through the cell phone via text messages or uh, and, and we do a lot of stuff like that which is which I, I find a little bit not disappointing. I don't want to, but you know you lose that human touch in today's world right now where you can just text somebody or and, and it, we used to have to do that via phone calls. And uh, again, a, a Bob Clark story to all the managers when I was starting out. He said, like, we're at a manager's meeting and he had called, he was calling guys. And this is when cell phones were just coming into vogue and all that. And said, you know, we don't have a lot of jobs to do, but if a manager calls a manager, you got to call them back within two hours and, and just say, I'll get back to you later. Mm-hmm. Because everyone was now, you know, there was a voicemail and you get back at a different time. And, and I, I miss, I miss some of that personal contact that we have with managers, but to answer the question, yeah, I, you know, there, there are, there are guys, Kenny Hall and I talk quite a bit, uh, um, you know, just guys that I've been around with guys that I've worked with a long time, but I do, I do enjoy talking to Kyle Dubas, and Julian Breezeball, that next generation of guys that are, I remember what I was what is going through when I was that age and you just try and support them. And just the way that the, 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 the veterans supported me. Do they ever call you for advice uh, on on their team? Yeah, uh, they, they do. They do, and we and we talk uh, again. We we also understand that we have a business to do player trade wise, but the advice Alan would come more on how to deal with a coach, how to deal with scouts, how to do deal with certain situations. You know what what do your experiences teach you? How to how to manage a, a, a relationship with the player. So again, we, we try and, we try and help each other out. It's a small fraternity. There's 32 of us. Uh, it's, you know, there's a, a saying that when the, the best job in hockey is an assistant coach or assistant manager, because you're, you're involved in everything, but your head's never on the, on the, on the, on the chopping block. <laughs> yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's what, that was one of the, again, Bob Ganey stories. What's the difference between being a manager and a coach or a manager and assistant manager. And he said, well, when you're the manager, you hear everybody's 
points of view and then you go home and toss and turn at night when you're an assistant manager you give that and you sleep like a baby <laughs> and, and so uh but but we do we do we do try and help out each other uh I, again it, it's, it's a small fraternity and we are we are friends and we do understand what what someone's going through with their family like especially in today's world it's much different alan now that instant instant analysis after every game uh you know you win three in a row they're planning a parade route you lose three in a row they want your head on a and and it gets retweeted and retweeted and retweeted on how stupid you are and uh it's 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 funny it's a job now i think that's much easier for a coach and manager when your kids are older when i started out my kids were were you know five you know very young uh and and in grade school and uh i i think it's very hard today in social media to have young kids in these professions yeah talking about social media uh are are you on twitter and and how often are you uh using it and for what purpose uh i'm I am on Twitter. I, I, I don't tweet though. I, I, I have, uh, there's, I think I have 22 people I follow and you're one of them. Uh, <laughs> well, you got more than enough to read then. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I do cringe every once in a while. But I, do follow you. <laughs> I don't know if you should have told me you followed me. <laughs> but no, I, I, I just follow strictly hockey people, people that, that I know are connected. Uh, and, and I, I, I'm on it quite a bit. I read, I like to find out what's going on around. Uh, I, I don't, I haven't, maybe it's my age or maybe it's my profession or maybe just the way I look at it. I, I don't see a lot of purpose of me tweeting my thoughts out to other people. Uh, I don't, I don't know why, you know, uh, I see other guys do it and have a lot of fun with it. I, I have a lot of fun reading it. I don't have a lot of fun writing it, but <laughs> uh, I, I think social media is a great way to, to, to gain information for sure. Okay. Go ahead, Adam. Well, I, I, uh, you know, I think one of the things that everybody's questioning if, if we're, if it comes to social media, Alan, and I hope you don't mind me asking this is, you know, there's obviously, um, the Olympics coming up and there is, a, like a, there's a huge, there's a huge story right there already. Right. And I, I guess, you know, what do I, what I would want to know is, you know, as a, as somebody that, uh, has retweeted and <laughs> done all the things you talked about, um, with what, what happened with the NHL players not going to the Olympics? Um, did you find out about that on Twitter or did they give you the heads up first? Uh, and you know, how did you react to that? Because that has to make your job, um, more, much more challenging. Well, I, I found out through hockey Canada, uh, the, the league and the union had reached out and told them that, uh, that that decision had to be made. And Al and I had actually, uh, we, we talk quite a bit in our profession and I consider him a friend and uh, I know he has a lot of clients that are Olympians and I understood how important it was for the players to go and quite honestly, the coaches to go management to go. Uh, but it had to be under the umbrella on what was best for, for the NHL and for hockey and what we've gone through the last two years of, of uh, interrupted seasons, uh, interrupted season again, uh, I, I think our, as someone that gets paid by the NHL, someone who, who makes his living, I understood the, the necessity to have this year be as, as normal as possible. Uh, but it was disappointing. Uh, from a manager's perspective, uh, I, as a manager, I got almost everything I wanted out of the Olympics in the sense that, when, when you're a manager of an NHL team and you get to the trade deadline and you've done 
all the damage you can do to your organization. All you become is a cheerleader at that point. You try and support the players. You try and support the coaches. Where we were in that Olympic process is we were about, Alan, well, maybe two weeks away from, from naming the teams. And so most of the work I had done was 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 completed. And that's the part that I really loved. I got to meet assistant managers of, of Kenny Holland work with, again, Don Sweeney, Ron Francis, Roberto Luongo, uh, you know, I got to meet John Cooper and then he named a staff and we met together. So I, I, again, hockey is about relationships and I got to add a whole new layer of relationships in there. And I would have loved to see Canada go. I, I would have loved to have been part of to watch, uh, uh, become a fan and watch Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid and McKinnon play with each other and, and, and how they're going to interact. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to see Matthews and Kane. There, there was so many great stories in the NHL. Uh, the young Russian players that uh, on uh, on Tampa, you know, the goaltender, uh, Kucherov, there, there was going to be – when we get back, it's going to be a great tournament. There's going to be great things to it. But I did understand the decision that was made by the league and the PA uh, to, to have to make a very hard decision. And, and But I also understand the, the, the sorrow that the players feel for not going. Any chance you think that the uh... – uh, Olympics are postponed and we can uh, do all this again in 2023. I, I don't know. Uh, quietly. I, and, and I guess it's not quiet. I'm on your show, but I, I'm hoping that, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, I, I love the experience. Now, if we go back, there's no guarantee I'll be involved in it, but even if I'm not involved in it, I'd love to watch it again. The Olympics are about the players and it's about being a fan, uh, watching the best on best. And uh, you know, you, you don't, the only way I think the Olympics would be postponed is that if COVID takes another higher step and you, nobody wants that in society, we want to see it go the other way. We want to see COVID go away and get back to normal. But if it, if it does, if it does step up and they do push it off, I think, you know, in the NHL and the uh, go, go to the Olympics in 2023, I'll, I'll certainly be uh, fully vested in watching at least. So Marc-Andre Fleury, was he there? <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I had this question now. Everybody on Olympics made the team because I'm not making any enemies right now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, oh, yeah. He was on it for sure. <laughs> he, he was on it for sure. <laughs> so we can put Jonathan Huberto in there as well. He made he, it for sure. Yeah. He's yeah, on right it. there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing that uh, uh, I find really interesting is that you have always surrounded yourself with uh, very experienced people uh, from uh, Dave Taylor, former GM in Los Angeles, um, uh, Larry Plo, you kept uh, on and, and was very close and involved in management, you know, longtime GM in, uh, in St. Louis and longtime uh, in management as well, previously with the New York Rangers. Uh, nowadays, you've got, uh, uh, you know, Walt, you've got Robbie DeMaio, uh, you've had Marty Brodeur uh, as an assistant GM uh, or operating as such, um, Kevin McDonald. Um, with all these people around you in management, how do you delegate authority? Uh, well, I, I think it starts by getting as many good people around you as possible and as much information as possible. Uh, Peter Shirelli and Al McGinnis are two names that uh, that I know you are, are, are deeply entrenched in our group right now. And yeah. Alan, I think it's just part of, uh, I don't want to say 
a leadership style, but I read a book, Lincoln on Leadership, and, and it was basically surround yourself, be the dumbest guy in the room, you'll end up being the smartest guy in the room. And and that's what I try and surround myself with, people that have, have you know, great knowledge in other areas. As far as delegation, when, when you have people that are working for a common goal, you really don't have to delegate because they – they, they seem to understand and, and everybody fills a gap. And if there's a gap there, you start out with, with like roles. Okay. You, you're going to take care of the minor league team or you're going to take care of pro scouting. But, you know, I want Robbie DeMaio to be a manager. I want Timmy Taylor to be a manager. And to do that, I have to allow them to get into areas that might not be in their job description, but allow them to gain knowledge. You know, and, and with, whether it's a, a Dave Taylor or Larry Plo or now a Peter Shirelli, to have those guys that they can, the rest of the staff can talk to. Sometimes a manager, if you lose a few in a row, people are afraid to call you because they, they don't know where your mindset is at. But with Peter or Larry or Dave, they can give them a call and they can, they can help them walk through to increase their value in the organization. And, you know, one of the things that you, you, you want to try and do, I was able to do it in, uh, in, uh, uh, Dallas with Francois Jouguer, he came and then he went on to be a manager. You know, you want to see guys move out of your organization. Uh, you know, Marty Berger went on to be the president in uh, uh, high, high job in New Jersey. And what you want to try and do is put guys in positions to have great success other places. And and to do that, you have to give them the opportunity to learn. And, uh, and But I'm very fortunate. I, I don't work with people that are trying to climb the ladder, as you know, as you see some guys that are willing to step on wherever they have to step to to move up. I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with guys of high high quality and high character that understand that the better we do, the better we, the better, you know, we do, they do. Right now. Oh, go ahead, Alan. No, it's, it's all yours. Okay. So I got to ask you this. What is it like uh, dealing with agents? What's uh because one of the things that we have, like if you, if you get a, if you get a call and it's from Alan Walsh on your phone, uh, what, what instantly goes through your mind? What's the first thing that comes up? Block it. No. <laughs> voicemail, no. voicemail, voicemail, voicemail. Uh, Al and I have a great relationship. We actually talk quite a bit about things uh, around the game and in the game and, and quite honestly outside of hockey too. But I, I would say, I don't know how if Alan feels the same way. I found it more difficult pre-salary cap in, in our relationships because there was no, there was always an extra dollar there if you could find it. Right. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like it's you, you had to say, stop, well, go to your owner and see if he wants to give that other hundred thousand dollars. This guy's done this and that. Now you just say, here's the pie and it's this big. And there's no, and you, no matter how big the slice you get, it's somebody else getting a smaller slice. And so I find it quite, quite a, a little bit easier right now to deal, to deal with, with player representatives as far as contracts. Uh, what, what I've, hopefully gained experience in is is working with agents to do what's best for players away from the rink trying to you know they're they're, they're people and then they're you know everyone's gonna you know stub their toe skin their knee along the way and might need some help whether it's at the rink away from the rink with family and uh what you want to do is you want to leave this game having people say that he was a hard negotiator, whatever they want to say about the way you did the job, but he was a good person. He treated us well. And I think to do that, you have to have a good relationship with the agents because the great agents, that's all they want to. Uh, they're all going to make their money. They're going to, you know, Alan has a, 
uh, a term. I'm not going to use the full term, but it's, uh, he says, you know, when he's dealing with a player and, and they're talking about leaving, it's like, don't F with happy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and quite honestly, I really believe that, you know, there, there's a point where you have to, you have to make that judgment for yourself as a, as a coach, a manager, when's enough enough. And when you're happy and as a player, when's enough enough. And I think it's easier to do that to, to say, you know what, I am happy. I want to stay if you've treated people fairly from the get-go. Hmm. I completely agree with what you said, Doug, but keep in mind, um, the St. Louis Blues have been a salary cap team mm-hmm. probably for the last decade. And there are other teams out there, uh, some that, are not at the cap and not near the cap where that discussion, like you said, is really a matter of going back to the owner and saying, you know, can we do this? We have the cap space to do it for now when we're probably going to have the cap space to do it for the next year or two. So certainly if you've got limited cap space available, that's something that as an agent, you have to recognize and take into account in any negotiation uh, and it's certainly easier getting deals done when teams are capped out as opposed to when they're not. Mm-hmm. No question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just that the pie is only so big. And I think that's, again, with the relationship you build, not only with the representative, but you build with the player, too, where where they might not, you know, the, the other thing is like the easiest lie is the first lie to make with somebody. It's the next one that gets harder and harder. <laughs> right. And so if, if, if you don't lie out of the gate, if you're honest, they might not like, they might not like what they hear, but they know they're hearing the truth. And, and that's, that's one of the things that I think that uh, makes, makes life easier that if you just deliver bad news as compassionately as possible, but it's still bad news, people can accept that because they know, they know they're getting the straight goods. And Alan, I got to ask you, Doug Armstrong calls you. <laughs> What's your first thought? <laughs> uh, always answer the call. Um, <laughs> Doug, Doug, is, Doug is known uh, negotiating in the agent community as a tough but fair negotiator. Okay. Uh, but I also find that uh, for people in management, uh, it's somewhat rare to find somebody who truly cares about the players, who cares about their families, who thinks about it. We all know it's a business. And part of the business is, Doug, you have to trade players. You have to, at times, put players on waivers. You, at times, have to deliver uh, bad news, sometimes shocking news. Um, And that's not an easy spot to be in, in, in any profession, but it's what you signed up for. Uh, on the agent side, um, you know, it's our job, uh, to always represent the best interests of our players. And I find that, um, 95% of the time, the team's interests and the player's interests are completely aligned. They really are. The team wants the player to be playing his best. The player wants to be playing his best and the agent wants the player to be playing his best. So all of the interests are aligned. Doug, how do you deal with it when an agent calls you and he's not happy with a player's ice time? Uh, He's not happy with the player's opportunity. Uh, An agent calls you and says, you know what? This isn't working here. Uh, Trade, trade this guy. 
How do you deal with that? Well, I think it, to me, Alan, it all goes back on the relationship with the player. When you get that, when you get that call from a, from a player that's 21 or 22, you try and work through the process that, that it is a foundational process and that you have to pay your dues. You know, the coach, whether you like it or not, he's, he's going to go to the security blanket of the 28, 29, 30 year old veteran that he might not get the high end, but he's not going to get the low end. Uh, and, and I always say to players, it's, it's, it's not how good your, your best game is. It's how good is your worst game? That, that's what you got. You got to, you got to get the Valley way closer to the top of the mountain. If you want to be a consistent NHL player. Uh, and when you're dealing with a veteran player that says, you know, like the, the ones that get me are, are when you got the guy in his early thirties that knows that the, the window is starting to close and you're not playing him and he's a healthy scratch for X amount of games in a row. And you know, in your own mind, you're, you're having a huge effect on his next contract, his ability to stay in the league. That's when you try and work with guys to, is there, is there a better solution for you? I think no, nobody is looking to ever ruin a guy's career. That's, that's just, that doesn't happen. No, nobody gets up every day saying, okay, how can I screw this guy today? Even if it hurts the team, like life doesn't work that way, at least it, where, where I work. And so I, I think everyone's a little bit different. I think some of the, um, some of the newer agents, they, they may call quicker than the, the veteran agents. I think the veteran agents are uh, have the ability to take the first call from the, from the player, maybe wait and see if it, the second call comes. And then maybe on the third call, say, okay, this is serious. I got to call the team. I think probably the agent's job, and I've ever asked Alan, it's, it's like a sifter. Like you, you, you got to shake through. And you got to find out, you, like all the crap that gets stuck in the sifter, you got to throw out. And if there's stuff falls through, you got to deal with. But you can't just deal with it every time. I'm sure, as a, like you can't pick up when you get a phone call 11:30 at night that I only played 11 minutes last night. Call the GM right now. I want out of here. You probably say, okay, yeah, I'll get right on that. Then you roll over and go to bed. <laughs> so, so I, I think dealing with those ones again is knowing the situation, but trying to trying to put yourself in the players' shoes or skates in our industry. But and that's why again you talk back to I, I call Peter Shirelli, I can call Dave Taylor, I can ask Al McGinnis and, and Keith to Chuck as players as star players i can ask robbie de mayo as as a guy that had a great career as a worker okay like what is he thinking what is he going through how can we help him get through this and so and obviously our coaching staff too are all ex-players uh uh this staff is we're worker bees i mean steve ott was a worker bee craig berube is a worker bee you know these are you know jim montgomery so these these guys went up and down so they they have a they have a good uh feel and pulse for the guys on what they're going through and they can help me navigate these uncomfortable times when things aren't going somebody's way. So, so an agent calls you and he's not happy about uh, something going on with his client. Um, and, and this is more uh, hypothetical or philosophical on, on your part, not referring to any specific uh, time frame or, or coach that could be behind the bench. Would you typically bring in the coaching staff or go see them and talk about it? Or, or would you uh, talk to the player directly? What, what would be your preferred way to deal with it on your end? Well, I usually what I'll do is if I, if I believe there's validity to it, I won't say to the coach, listen, I just got a call from player X's agent or player X and he's unhappy because that 
I don't know how the coach is going to react to that. So I'll say, geez, I was wondering, like, he he was playing good before that and he was playing with this guy. And, you know, I I know, I know player Y is playing better, but you ever think about putting him out in this situation to get his ice time up? You, You try and take the message if you believe the message is correct and work it into their thought process. Uh, I brought players in and at, you know, and say, I, I understand your frustration, but you're, you're, you're 23 years old and you can either, uh, I go back to what we said earlier. Like I have said this to many players, trust me, the coach didn't wake up today and I didn't wake up today saying, geez, I wonder how we can get that guy today. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you might, you might think that, but that's not how we think we're saying, how can we win that game tomorrow? And how do you fit into it? And so you, you, you try and work it, but I, I don't try and I, I, Alan, my, my belief is if, if you try and pit a player or a player representative against the coach, that's, that's not a recipe for success. Doug, can we talk about, uh, can we talk about the Stanley cup? Sure. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, it, this, the St. Louis run is one of the most unbelievable runs in recent memory. Um, and, and really I was talking about this last night with Alan. It's the last one before the world kind of went off kilter with this pandemic, right? It's the last season that we played intact and the last time I can actually remember what happened in the season, because there's been so much fracture in the, in the past couple, um, you know, the, the thing that people forget is that in January, things weren't looking that good. And I just wonder as a general manager, you know, with the trade dead, deadline closing, and I believe you guys were in last place, if not close to it and turn it around. When do you decide, okay, I, I guess we got a shot at this. And how close are you to going well, we're going to sell at the at the trade deadline like we had to do in Dallas. Well, I would say that going into that year, we had high expectations. We had just uh, brought David Perron in. We had just brought Ryan O'Reilly in. We had, we had brought players in that made not only ourselves. I always go to Vegas. Like, where, where does Vegas, if Vegas thinks you're good? You're probably good. If Vegas thinks you're bad, you're probably bad. <laughs> and 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 we were our our. our like we were, you know, sixth, seventh in, in the betting to win the Stanley Cup when the year started. So I was more surprised by the lack of success we had early. Uh, but then you then so then you go through that initial look in the mirror phase. Like, have I lost my touch? Have I lost have I lost my foundation of what I think is right? Is the game passing me by? You start with yourself and then you you answer those questions. And then, uh, and Alan can, he had players on that team. We had a meeting, I would say in the middle of December, that was just basically that we believe in you guys, but that doesn't really matter. I can believe in you <laughs> as much as you want. If we don't start winning games, either you're not going to be around or I'm not going to be around. But the owner is not going to just sit here and say, oh, well, they're a bunch of good guys, so I don't really care if we lose. <laughs> and so we were we were out in Western Canada. We had that meeting. We started to play better, uh, and the wind started to follow. Obviously, we got Bennington in here, and he went on a roll. Uh, but we had a lot of ground to catch up. And then when we started to play good, we got to the trade deadline, and it wasn't a team that we needed to add a lot to uh, because we'd done that over the summer. But it certainly wasn't a team that I was I, I felt anywhere comfortable pulling the rug out because they had worked so hard that I thought they had earned the right to see if how far they could take that. And obviously they took it a long way that year, but it was a, uh, like, I think when, as a hockey fan, you look back and you remember the January, but 
people are going to say, well, that was a pretty good team. They had 99 points that year. It wasn't like yeah. they, it wasn't like uh, my first year in Minnesota, we had 66 points and went to the finals. <laughs> That's Cinderella. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So this is a 99 point team that, that, that was a good team. Now, obviously our second half, uh, was fantastic. And, and the guys did a great job in the playoffs to, to get it all the way through. But there, there was a time in there that if you didn't turn it around, you know, were we going to start a, some form of a rebuild? And it's funny, we have that success. And now we're at a, a point where we've carried that on for the last three years. We've been a good team. We're a decent team again this year. And, and we believe that we can compete. And it's amazing what a you know if you lose five of those games instead of win five we're probably you're probably not talking to me anyways you're talking to the guy that's the manager of the St. Louis Blues and <laughs> and there's probably a whole bunch of different players here too. So I'll 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 share a story with you. I don't know if I've ever uh, I told you this, but uh, the day before Game Seven in Boston uh, in 2019, uh, David Perron and I were getting coffee at a coffee shop. And we're sitting there having coffee and talking and we're talking about, you know, stuff other than hockey because I wanted to get his mind off the game. And just we were talking about, uh, you know, plans for the summer and, and, and other stuff. And we look up and you're across the street walking by yourself. Um, and I know that you like to go on walks when you're in cities on game day and the day before the game. So I snapped a picture on my phone of you walking on the sidewalk across the street and I sent it to you and I, uh, and I titled it uh, a general manager alone with his thoughts. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, you responded with something very witty as you usually do. Uh, and, and then I re- you know, I remember um, vividly being at the game, sitting with David's uh, mom and dad, and uh, and wife and we're all sitting there. Um, and when David lifted up the cup, you know, the emotion behind it, he lifted up the cup and he, he knew exactly where his family was. And he locked eyes with them as he raised it. And, and you just saw standing next to the dad and the mom and the wife, the emotion of the moment with David holding the cup and his mouth wide open and his mom and dad and, and the look on their faces and to, to be there at that moment. It's, you know, there've been several moments like that in, in, in my journey, my 27 years in the business, but that's one of the very special moments you never forget. Yeah. Well, I can just, there, there's people you want to see win the cup. You, you want to win it yourself. You want to win it for everybody. But but there's certain people that that you think have earned it, that 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 have maybe spilt a little more blood along the way than other guys. And David was one of those guys. Uh, he was he got drafted before I got to St. Louis. Uh, but we sort of grew up together in this organization. Uh, I started out as player personnel and he was playing and, you know, we got better than I traded him and then we brought him back and we traded and we brought him back. We traded and we brought him back. <laughs> but but the reason we did that it was I always respected David. I always felt that he cared and he loved hockey. And his first couple of years here, and Alan can attest this, the, the guys used to get mad at him because he practiced too hard, he worked too hard, he made them look bad. And I remember saying this to him was that's their issue, not yours, David. Like that's that's you know. 
I get it. They're, they're aged and they don't, they're veterans. They don't want to do this, but you got to do what you think is right. And he's got that passion, that love of the game, that work ethic that he has. The One of the first players, you know, of, of, of that young, uh, so young to put a gym in his basement, all the little things he, he did when I saw him lift the cup, those are the things that came back to my mind. And, you know, and then there was other players, not just David on that team, but there are certain guys that you, you've been around a long time that, that feels really great to see them do that. You know, a, a young player in 99 when we won was, uh, was Darian Hatcher. His first year, Darian uh, lived with my wife and I as a 19 year old. And then all of us, he's, he's lifting the cup and, you know, it, so there, those, those relationships you have with guys that are a little bit different and, uh, but I, I know what I know what Alan's talking about. When you see the when you when you have a relationship like Alan has with David, the the joy the parents have it becomes communal. It, it's not just those two; it, it's the whole family. And yeah. what was it like for you? Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, it was. It was so we. In, in 99, or I'm sorry, in uh, my first year in Minnesota in 1990, I think Pittsburgh won that game 7-7-1. Seven, seven to one. It was my first year in Minnesota. I didn't understand what was going on, but the game was over early. Uh, then in Dallas in 99, we won the Cup uh, in overtime, triple overtime, I think. With and the, then the next year, the, we, the, the alleged skate in the crease. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't even close. <laughs> 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 I said alleged. I said alleged. <laughs> and and then the next year we lost it. We lost it uh, in overtime. Jason Arnott scored the goal actually in Dallas. So this was my next uh, my next trip back. And you know, all of a sudden, David makes a, a great play to Sanford. Really, to to I think it was for the fourth goal, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Allen? Yeah. That sort of made you look up and you're okay. It's four nothing. There's ten minutes. That's you're not, you're not a hundred percent comfy, but you're way more comfy than two. <laughs> and, then, and, and, and then I, I really got to enjoy it the last three or four minutes. And then I, I think just more of experience. I was, it, I started to think about the guys that are doing it for the first time. And the guys that have bled so much, I started to think about Bobby Plager, the late great Bobby Plager, you know, spent his whole career uh, from the day that the blues started and he got to touch the Stanley Cup. There was so many people that in St. Louis, you know, that that wanted to be part of that. And I, it was just a great experience for me. But it was more because of what others were getting out of it than what I was getting out of it. And I'm not saying that I didn't get a lot out of it. But I, but I really took a lot of joy watching everybody else celebrate. That's what I remember about that one. Yeah. Well, uh, Doug, I know you got to catch a flight. And uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, we could probably easily talk another hour or two, uh, but then you'd be flying commercial. On, uh, <laughs> on the trip. And I know you don't want to do that. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been, uh, it's been uh, everything I thought it would be and more. And uh, I'm very uh, appreciative uh, of you taking your valuable time to come on and, and, and share some stories with us. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a lot of fun and I look forward to uh, uh, continuing to work with you, Alan, and getting to meet the guys you're working with more and more down the road. <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Doug. Yeah. Thanks, thanks guys. Doug.